You know, you can't unhear that. All week long, all of y'all going to be driving around going, say what? That was a little 90s beat. Um, but <clears throat> good morning. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of our pastors here at my church. I want to, before we get started this morning, well, actually, before we, before we get started, the, the truth that was in the song, the last song that they sang, it's like one of the greatest theological truths in all of the Scripture that there is no wall. Titanium, vibranium, it don't matter what it is. There's no wall that He will not just rip down coming after us. That is like one of the greatest truths. You need to soak up that truth, put it in your heart, and don't ever, ever forget it. He will hunt you down. He will climb up a tree to find you. He will bust down a wall, any wall, to find you. Um, what I was going to say is after uh, the, the worship service we had last week, and the energy was unbelievable last week if you were here last week, I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update. And, uh, and you see, you may have, saw, have seen the thermometer outside. It has black mercury. I don't know if you all noticed that. That was a, a little different. Um, but our goal for now on the financial side of the conversation last week was to get to $30,000 over this week, and we got... And I don't, I don't know what happened uh, yesterday, but we got to about 26, which is pretty dang good. And so I thank you all all for your generosity. So that is a really amazing beginning to, uh, to get us on the road to, to building a, a building. Uh, today, though, we're in the, in the first uh, message in a two, little two-part uh, two-part two series message called Say What, hence the, the little beat that we had going on a minute ago. Uh, we're going to be doing that today and then again in a couple of weeks and then next, uh, with, with next week on the 23rd, a Christmas message in the middle of that and then we're going to have a Christmas Eve uh, series or a little ser- service on Christmas Eve at 5.30. Next Sunday's regular uh, 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and then we'll do Christmas Eve at 5.30. Next Sunday's message, the Christmas message next Sunday, is going to be probably a different sort of message than you've ever heard, so I encourage you all to be here. This series that we're starting today, and we're just doing it, we're going to do it uh, this week and then in a couple of weeks, and then we're going to do this probably periodically throughout the year when we need a message here or there in between series. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to take passages, verses that are tough. Uh, verses or passages that all of us struggle with, verses that really on the surface maybe they make no sense to us. I just don't want us, and one of my commitments to this church is we're not going to avoid hard conversations. We're not going to avoid things that are difficult because the truth is there are, there are passages and verses <clears throat> in the Scripture that we struggle with. Do y'all, is there stuff that you struggle with? Okay. So today, um, as we begin this, we're going to find some verses, find some passages. We're going to dig in, try to figure out what they mean. We're going to try to pull a timeless truth out of them if there's a timeless truth there, and then apply that to our lives. Today I want to look at a verse in the book of Matthew. Matthew is uh, the first book in the New Testament. It's the first gospel uh, in the New Testament. This verse is in chapter 5, chapter chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the, uh, the greatest, longest block of instruction 
that Jesus gives us that is recorded in the Scriptures. And he's doing this on the Mount of Beatitudes uh, in Israel. And I want us to look, we're going to look at at verse 5 of, uh, excuse me, verse 20 of chapter 5. Here's what it says. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I read that and I say, so, <clears throat> so I got to be better than those guys. I got to do better. My works have to be better than theirs. And I think the scribes and the Pharisees, for real, they're the ones that keep the law. As a matter of fact, the scripture calls them in other places the keepers of the law. They keep the law. They, they cross all the T's. They dot all the I's. And I got I to gotta be better than them to get into heaven. Is that what this text is saying? Because that's what it looks on the surface. That's what it is saying. I want to look at a parable in Luke 18, which jives perfectly with this verse in Matthew chapter 5. And this is uh, in, in Luke 18, and it begins in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. So if you stop there for a second, these are people that Jesus is talking to in Luke 18 that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, self-righteous, really. That self-righteousness is, the, is human achievement. It is, it is the religion of, of doing. It's a religion of works. It's a religion, of again, of human achievement. And so that's who he told this story to in Luke 18. Verse 10, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The tax collector's kind of off to his own. And he's pointing over there to him. I thank God I'm not like other men, and I especially thank God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so this is like an exercise in in futility for this self-righteous guy, this self-righteous Pharisee. And to know, as a Pharisee, they were the most, quote, religious people in in all of that society. In his mind, he had no doubt that what Jesus just said is true. He was thanking God that he wasn't like other people, that his behavior went way beyond everybody else's, like he fasted twice a week. The Old Testament prescribed basically one fast a year. This joker's fasting a hundred times more than what the Bible, what the, what the Old Testament prescribed. On the other hand, you got this, uh, this tax collector who is kind of far off. The text says he's kind of far off. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. And so there's humility there. There's probably shame there. Um, There's really, truly, there's probably a lot of shame there. It says he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. You ever feel so guilty or so shameful that, that you can't even look up and talk to God? That's where this tax collector is at. 
But, it says, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so here's this contrast. You got this, the least respected man in all of that society was a tax collector because he was a Jew that had worked for Rome. He was a turncoat. He was a traitor. He collected taxes from his own people. He'd forsaken uh, he's forsaken his loyalty and his nationalism, even his religion, for money. That's the one that is over in the corner, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And verse 14 gives us the whole point of the story. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Y'all remember that, that last sentence. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That, we're going to come back to that in a minute. And so there's this story about the bad man, the quote bad man, that's entering heaven, and the quote good man that is headed to hell. And it, this is a perfect beginning to what we're going to look at in, uh, in Matthew 5. That the average person then and the average person today would, would hear that parable in Luke 18 and not quite understand it because we live in a cause and effect world. We live in a world where good people go to heaven and, and bad people go to hell. That's what people believe. I did, absolutely did for 36 years, 100% believe that. Lived my whole life believing that it, if you acted right enough, and I don't even know what that means, but if you acted right enough that you would end up in heaven. And if you didn't act right enough, well, I don't even really know what I believed about hell. I just knew that there's something, nothing good was going to come of it. And that's just being transparent. I believed that for 36 years. And so this man is over there and he's beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. He's acknowledging his sinfulness. He's acknowledging that he is headed to hell. And on the other hand, you got this other dude who, who says, well, I, I don't extort, I don't, I'm not an adulterer, I'm, I, I don't do anything wrong, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all everything that I possess, and this super religious person you think is for sure he's the one that's going to heaven. Most people in our society today, most people believe if you're good enough, you'll get there, and if you're bad, you won't. But Jesus told a story in Luke 18 that says right the very opposite. But then he took it like he, he ramped it up on steroids in Matthew 5.20. And we'll get to that in a second. I want to tell you I'm full of meaningless bits of trivia. But uh, I want to tell you a little archaeology story. And this is a true story. 1922, a guy named Howard Carter He's the guy that, that discovered King Tut's tomb. And so what he discovered there was this large, this large outer coffin. It's kind of ornate. And he opens that up, and there's another one inside. Super crazy ornate, inlaid gold and jewels and beautiful coffin. And he opens that one up, and he looks inside that one, and there's another coffin. And then he opens that one up, and there's another coffin. Well, that one was 24 karat gold one of the most beautiful artifacts really ever found. And he opens beautiful on the outside, and he opens that one up, and you've got this mummy 
wrapped in cloth. What kind of cloth was it? It was gold cloth that it was wrapped in. And Tut had a mask on. Most beautiful mask you'd ever see. Gold, gold filigree, solid gold, jewels, all this beautiful, beautiful mask. Well, he takes that mask off, and what does he see under that mask? And they, they unwrap this gold cloth, and he's got a dead, leathery, nasty, decayed corpse is what is staring at him. Outside, very beautiful, very ornate on the outside. But on the inside is a dead man's bones. It's what's on the inside that counts, not what's on the outside, not the outside covering that we, me and you, sometimes wear this, this facade of, of gold that we put on to try to hide the decaying spiritual side of what's inside. And as a matter of fact, the word in Greek is hypocrites. It's where we get the word hypocrite from. It's hypocrites. And the, this is the way that word was used in that day. It is the art of the actor. That is what hypocrites is. When, when, when an actor was acting in a, as a hypocrites, he was from that moment, from that moment he was, he was wearing a mask because that's what actors did then. They didn't, they didn't have full-blown costumes. Whoever they were portraying, it was a mask of that person. And they were sold out 100% of their conduct on that stage had to display their character. They had to act like that was who they really are. When on the inside, when they took the mask off, it's not at all who they, who they were. That's where we get the word hypocrite from. It's really a mask wearer. And the Pharisees were the masters, the total masters at this mask wearing thing. On the outside, they had it going on. But Jesus said on the inside, you're a dead, rotten, nasty, spiritual corpse. And so that's in, in, then in 520. Now the people, though, the people looked at them and they didn't recognize the mask. The people looked at them and said, they are the guys. They are the super Jews of the day. They're the guys that, that do everything right. And then Jesus says, oh, and by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so if I today, if I picture a church, this is going to be at the potential of being offensive, so bear with me. If I picture a church today full of scribes and Pharisees, full, a church full of, of, of mask wearers, here's the way that I would, in my mind's eye, this is kind of what I see. They'd be here every single Sunday. Every Sunday they'd be here. Every single Sunday they'd be on time. Most of them, husband and wife, would get in their car every Sunday to be here on time. In the car they're screaming and yelling and fighting with each other because one or the other is making them almost late. Meanwhile, their kids are in the back seat listening to mom and daddy scream and yell at each other. And as soon as they park... In the church parking lot, they open the door and the fighting stops because they, they, can't, they can't let anybody know they have an argument. The fighting stops. They get out, absolutely have their Bible. Probably hadn't read their Bible in 17 years, but they got their Bible with them. They're dressed perfectly to a T, absolutely prim and proper. They, every one of them would be, would be tithing, exactly 10%. Every one of them would be. They never cuss. 
They never swear. They never drink. They never get drunk, at least not in public. They would not cuss or swear or drink or get drunk. And then Jesus said, and every one of them would be going straight to hell. That's what he said. And that's tough. I mean, that's tough. Outwardly, very religious. Outwardly, super, super, in that day, the super Jews. Today we'd say they are the holy rollers of the Christian church. And then Jesus said, those are the guys, your righteousness better exceed or you're not getting into heaven. Now, he's not talking about what's on the outside. Y'all, he's talking about what is on the inside. These were the scribes and the Pharisees, the super Jews in that day. It didn't get any better than them. In fact, matter of fact, my mom and dad told me when I was growing up, if only two people got in heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. That's the way I grew up. That's what I used to hear. And so you can't get better than them. And the average Joe, the average guy on the street would say, there's no way that I can be as good. There's no way that I can be as good as a Pharisee. I can't be like a scribe. Those guys study the scripture every day. They know it inside and out. They probably can just recite verbatim the entire Old Testament because they've copied it down so many times. Then he'd look at a Pharisee and he'd say, there's no way that I can be like that. I can't keep all those rules. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. I can't, there's no way I can keep all of those rules. I'm never going to make it in heaven. That's what they're thinking when Jesus says this. And so you can imagine he's got a huge crowd when he's saying this. Huge crowd looking off of the Mount of Beatitudes, which, by the way, has the best acoustics on the planet. It really does. And so he figured out where to go. And so he's speaking to these people. And the shock that is on their face when he tells them, your righteousness has got to exceed theirs or you will absolutely not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is total shock. And then he gives us six illustrations. Six illustrations that just rip the mask of hypocrisy and self-righteousness away. Verse 21, he says this, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, He's using this formula. You've heard it said, but I say. So this is Jesus talking. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, and that's racha. Some of your Bibles probably translations say racha. That was like a, a, a very derogative thing that you would say to somebody in that day. So whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he goes on in verse 27. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he goes on and he gives us four more illustrations the same way about divorce and about taking oaths and about retaliation and about loving uh, your enemies. Jesus just, he is laying the hammer down on tradition. He is laying the hammer down on vain religion. He's laying the hammer down on this hypocrisy that he sees. It's what's on the inside that counts. Think about this. There's a picture up on the screen of, of a twisted, that, that's a twisted piece of wood, and I did my best this week to find a piece because I wanted to have a piece. But if you could take that piece of wood and you could take it to a sawmill 
and you could get them to shave one side of that piece of wood. And then you flipped it over and you had them shave that side. And then you flipped it again you had them shave that side. And you did that on all four sides. And you end up with a 4 by 4 a 6 by 6 And you sand it real smooth. And you, you, you make the edges kind of smooth. And you end up with this. And then you whitewash it. And you paint it. And you've got this perfectly straight, perfectly smooth, perfectly pure, beautiful, square, clean piece of wood. But if you looked at it on the inside it would still be twisted. It would still be, it would still be crooked. At the heart of the wood would still be twisted and crooked. And the Pharisees, their lives were so straight and pure on the outside, but their hearts were crooked. They were twisted. When I told my folks 16 years ago, my mom and dad, when I told them that I'd gotten saved, when I told them that I'd become a Christian, and I've told you all this before, but for 36 years, I didn't even know what saved. I didn't even know that language was so foreign to me. I didn't know what that meant. And so the night that I told them, it mortified them. I mean, it mortified both of them. And it's really because they look at things through a different set of lenses. They look at their, their worldview is so totally different. Their worldview is that people, man, is basically good. At worst, their worldview would say that people are basically neutral, but really basically good. And so my mom asked me, she said, what is this whole saved thing that you're talking about? Edward, she called me Edward. What is this whole, what is that, what is that about? What is saved from what? She said, Edward, you're a good guy. She said, you're a good guy. And I remember like it was yesterday saying, but mama, you don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. But you're a good guy. And I said, but you can't see inside of me. God can see inside of me. It is what is on the inside that is the problem. It had taken me years, 36 years, to realize that I was a sinner. 36 years to realize that my heart was broken and I couldn't fix it myself. Especially men. Men are fixers. We're supposed to fix everything. And so it took me 36 years to realize that I couldn't fix it myself. Listen, a man is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. A man is not a thief because he steals. He steals because he's a thief. A man's not a, a, a liar because he lies. He lies because he's a liar. And Jesus said in Matthew 15:18, he said, All of these things, they come from the heart. They all come, they all emanate from the heart. And that's the reason that that Jesus said that our righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's making a point. And the point he is making is that we can't do it ourselves. That's the point he's making. He's, He's laying out a paradox that is impossible. They all knew when he said what he said, they knew that what he was saying was impossible. We, we can't. Our righteousness can't be greater than what we see on the scribes and the Pharisees. And many and most of the people that Jesus talked to, they never got saved. They never got saved because they never saw that they were a sinner. If I'm not a sinner, I have no need. If I'm not lost, I have no need to be saved. What am I being saved from? You've got to get a man lost before you can lead him to the cross. 
That rhymed. Do you realize that? You've got to get a man lost before you can lead him to the cross. And the Apostle Paul wrote about these people in, in chapter 10 of Romans. In verse 3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, not understanding the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own. That means they're, they want to right themselves. So they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're seeking, they're trying to establish their own righteousness. And so therefore they didn't submit to God's. So what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is he is ripping this veil away and he's going to crush, destroy the self-righteousness of these people. And he's going to show them their need for him and their need of regeneration and their need for rebirth and their need to be born again. And that's the reason that he says down in verse 20, it's got to exceed theirs or you ain't getting in heaven. And then while Jesus is saying in verse 21, you've heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder. The Pharisees are over, because they're hearing all of this. They're over there saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. Never murder. Don't murder. It's not in my DNA. I'm not a murderer. Never have. Because they're, they're so wrapped up in their self-righteousness. They're so wrapped up in themselves. And they're saying, yeah, I ain't done that. I hadn't murdered anybody. I'm good. I'm good. But then Jesus goes on in verse 22, and he says, But I say to you, while they're sitting over there all pompous and, and pious and righteous, saying, I've never murdered anybody, Jesus says immediately, But I say to you that whoever is angry, you've already committed murder with the anger. And so he's destroying that illusion of self-righteousness that they have. You see that? That, that's a sin that the Pharisees could say we definitely have not committed murder, just like me and you. We can say that. We're so sure that we don't have murder in our heart. At least we don't have murder on our, on our record. But what Jesus is showing us is that hatred is an acid that destroys the container. You get that? Hatred is an acid inside of you that destroys me and you. And that is what Jesus is saying. He goes way beyond the act of murder to the attitude behind it. He goes way, way beyond the murder to the motive of it to show what really causes people to, to kill and to act that way. And I have a friend of mine who, uh, he told me a story about him and his kid. His kid was in seventh grade. And it, it was, we were having a discussion about the Sermon on the Mount, actually. It was in a Bible study. And he said he and his wife had been having some issues at the time, and his kid was in seventh grade in a history class, and, his, and his, he and his son were sitting in their great room. His son was sitting on the ottoman. The daddy was sitting in the chair. And the kid's doing his homework, and he says to his dad, what makes people go to war? What, what makes people, you know, kill people or kill each other in a war? And the dad looks at the son. He says, well, he said, son, it's like this. If you want to know what causes war, he said it's like in World War II, um, the Japanese bombed. Pearl Harbor, and then the mama walks out of the kitchen. She'd been in the kitchen, and she had a dish towel in her hand, and she walks out of the kitchen, and she's, she's got this dish towel kind of in her hand, and she says, no, no, that's not, that's not really what started World War II. Here's what happened, and Mark, my friend, Mark, um, got a little ticked because she interrupted his teaching moment with his son, and he said, look, do you want to answer the question, or do you want me to answer the question? He's talking to his wife now. He said, did he ask you or did he ask me? 
Besides, you don't know anything about no history. Why don't you just get out of this conversation, butt out? You don't know anything about it. And she threw her dish towel on the floor. She slammed the door to the kitchen, and it rattled the, the, um, the, the dishes all up in the cabinet. And Mark turns around to his son. He says, now, you want, let me tell you about how wars start. And his son said, I think I understand how wars start. <laughs> now, look, it is a heart thing. It, it, is, it, is a, it, it all emanates from our heart. So you see the malice of murder. You see the acid of, of anger. Now let's look at the requirements of righteousness. And Jesus said, listen, unless it exceeds theirs, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the requirement. The requirement of righteousness is that it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And here's this timeless truth. Here is the timeless truth. You cannot behave your way into heaven. it It cannot be done. You cannot behave your way into heaven. And so you know what's wrong with self-righteousness. It is like trying to fill a bottomless cup. If I've got a cup up here, it doesn't have a bottom, and I'm trying to fill it up, I can't fill it up because it has no bottom. Trying to fill yourself with yourself adds nothing to yourself because nothing plus nothing equals nothing. And you can never, ever, ever get your own righteousness. You can never, ever achieve it yourself. You can never do anything to become right in God's eyes. Write that down. There's nothing that you and I can do to be right in God's eyes. That's what righteousness is. It is being right in front of God. The only thing that we can do is try to find a way to obtain His righteousness. You remember what Paul said in in verse 3 of, of Romans 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It is like our self-righteousness is filthy rags in front of God. So let me tell you what real righteousness is. It's two things. First of all, it is imputed. It is imputed righteousness. Real righteousness, God's righteousness, is imputed because Jesus died because Jesus paid our debt on that cross, because Jesus bought us back, He redeemed us, God imputes righteousness to us. He credits us with His righteousness. He declares us righteousness. He puts His righteousness on our account. It's like an accounting term. And He he credits us with that. God says, Ed, I declare Him righteous. Not because of anything that Ed's done, Really, in spite of everything that Ed has done, God says he's righteous. I'm declaring him righteous. And it is because Jesus suffered and died and bled on that cross for my sins that I'm imputed with his righteousness. Jonathan Edwards, who's one of the greatest, probably the greatest American theologian, three, four hundred years ago said this, we bring nothing to the table of salvation other than the sin that makes it necessary. It's all we bring, nothing, except the sin that makes it all necessary. So it is imputed righteousness. And then, number two, it's not only imputed, but it is implanted. It's implanted righteousness. He gives me a new nature. He, 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 he gives me a new, I get new birth. I become, a, I become a new creation. And then I do what I do because I am 
what I am. I'm made new and I'm made clean and I'm made pure on the inside. And God works a miracle, a judicial miracle in my life. That is what happens when God judicially declares me righteous. That is a miracle. He looks at me and He doesn't see my filthy rags anymore. He sees Christ's white robe wrapped around me. And then there's implanted, this implanted righteousness. He puts His righteousness into me via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living inside of me. And then the love of God just begins to come out more and more and more and more. And then Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let me tell you one last story. And this it's a metaphor, so don't, don't take this literally. It's a metaphor. It's, this is not a, a Liberty University theological research paper. It's a metaphor. So there's this guy, and he dreamed. And he dreamed of heaven. He dreamed of the, the gates of heaven. And there were people that are trying to get into heaven, and, and somebody knocked on the gate of heaven, and a voice from on the other side said, Who is it that seeks entrance uh, into heaven, and what's the password? And the man said, I'm a righteous man. I'm a moral man. And the dude on the other side says, What's the password? And he said, Honesty. And the guy on the other side said, Get away from me, you who do evil. I never knew you. Number two, knocks on the gate. The guy says, Who is it that seeks entrance into heaven, and what's the password? And he said, I'm a religious man. And the guy says, what's the password? He says, ritual and ceremony. The guy says, get away from me, you who do evil. I never knew you. And then number three knocks on the gate. And he says, who is it that seeks entrance into heaven? And what's the password? And the man says, I'm a humanitarian. I feed the hungry. I work with the widows and I help the orphans. And the guy says, what's the, what's the password? He says, love and charity. And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. And finally, the last one, number four, knocks on the gate. And this voice from inside says the same thing. Who is it that's seeking entrance and what's the password? And the guy says this, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. Nothing in my, I bring nothing. That's what he says. I bring nothing to you. All I am is clinging to your cross. And the voice on the other side says, open wide the gate and let him in for that. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the, to the moralist, to the humanitarian, to the religionist, to the whatever. That's what he meant when he said your righteousness has to exceed theirs to get into heaven. The only way to get in, the only way is to accept his righteousness. And it's free to us. It wasn't free. It wasn't cheap. It was costly. But it's free to us. And the only way in is to accept that free gift. And the Lord's not against other things. He's not against taking care of the homeless. He's not against the widows and the orphans. He's not against morality. He's not against love. He's not against the command not to commit murder. He's not against the command not to commit adultery. Of course He's not. He's for all of those things, but here's what he's saying. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's not a doing problem. It's a problem of the heart. And the only answer to that is new birth. The only answer to that is regeneration. The only answer to that is to be born again. I want to read you all in Matthew 
23. It goes right along with this. This is Jesus at the temple, and he is laying it on them. I'll read you part of Matthew 23. He said, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They're the guys in the restaurant praying so loud that the people in the kitchen can hear. That's the guys he's talking about. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be uh, exalted. And he says, woe to you. We don't even use that word today. Shame on you is what he's saying to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much of a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Do you know what they did? This is mint. This is what they did. They literally would have a mint. Smells good. It'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then one, one for the synagogue, for the temple. They did all that. But then Jesus said to them, you give a tenth of your mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Yeah, you need to do this stuff. Sure you do. But don't neglect mercy and love and faithfulness. Are you kidding me? That is what Jesus is saying because it emanates from our hearts. It is not about the mint. It's not about the tithe. It's not about all the rules and the regulations. It is about a heart change. It's about accepting His righteousness. And then... Augustus Montague, top lady, wrote in 1776 in Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. If you have never clung to his cross today, cling to his cross. Accept that righteousness that is free. It's free. To us, it is free. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for that salvation that you offer us. We thank you for that righteousness that cost you so dearly, but you offer it to us free. No no cost to us. Lord, we thank you for that. We love you in Jesus' name. Now look, if, if that happened to you, if you did cling to that cross today, if you said yes to that righteousness Get out that connection card and fill that out and just let us know. Just let us know. We want to pray with you. We want to pray 
for you. We want to walk that journey with you. And our prayer team is back in that corner every Sunday. Go back there and pray with them. Let them pray over you, whatever that would be. But let somebody know. And if you don't let us know, let your friend know. Somebody needs to walk that journey with you. I want to call our host team up and call Richard.